Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. It's been a while, and I've said that before, and so I do apologize how long it's taken in between episodes this year. I had promised that we were going to get more out, but we have been really busy with another project here at Modern Carnivore, and that is the relaunch of our learning portal and active, experienced a new hunter community called Hunting Camp Live. If you haven't checked it out yet, please go and uh, and see what you think of it. It's uh, huntingcamp.live, and you can request to get free access to a lesson for our new course that we just launched this fall that is focused on learning to hunt upland birds. And so given that, I can think of no better conversation than today with Ben Jones, who is the president and CEO of the Ruffed Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Ben and I actually caught up this last late winter uh, right before the pandemic shut everything down. We were at Pheasant Fest, which is the annual meeting of Pheasants Forever. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Ben and learning where this organization is going. And we talked today about uh, conservation in general, but also how their organization is all about uh, healthy forests of which diversity needs to be brought into that. And it's Somewhat of a complicated issue, but not really if you think about it from the standpoint of how they look at it and healthy management as opposed to development and deforestation, which is truly threatening a lot of our species. So if you are interested, please do check out Rough Grouse Society at roughgrousesociety.org. I am actually heading later today to Wisconsin uh, to be at their annual grouse camp event. And I'm really excited for this. Uh, Hunting Camp Live has been the recommended pre-work and post-work for it, where you can learn from your couch all things about hunting upland birds. But this event this weekend, there are going to be uh, around 100 people, both mentors and mentees, at this event and I'm going to be over there talking to different people, so stay tuned for more insights on that. But again, if you do want to check that out, go to roughgrousesociety.org and also check out huntingcamp.live. Hello, everyone. Today I'm here with a gentleman by the name of Ben Jones. Ben. Morning. Morning. And um, we are at Pheasant Fest 2020 uh, with our friends from uh, Pheasants Forever. And, uh, Ben, your role, uh, can you just tell a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm president and CEO of the Ruffed Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society, a conservation group with, we'll have our 60th anniversary next year. So we've been working on wildlife conservation for almost six decades. So your headquarters are in Pennsylvania, I believe? Yeah, our headquarters is in the northern part of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, but we've got uh, chapters and staff across about 38 states. So we're a national organization, but our HQ is in Pennsylvania. Great. So we are here in Minnesota today. Uh, obviously a very uh, a very popular uh, 
grouse and woodcock locations. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing you have good membership here. In, Absolutely. In Minnesota is one of the leading four states for sure. Absolutely. That's great. Um, so I'd like to start maybe just jumping back a little bit. Uh, you know, as you and I have talked about, uh, a lot of our audience are people that are new to hunting. And so I always like to ask uh, guests, you know, where did you get your start in hunting specifically? Yes. I, you know, there, there might have been some, like, um, something genetically <laughs> that uh, as far back as I can remember, I was really keenly interested in the outdoors and in wildlife. And my dad hunted, certainly. I, I was from a, a family that hunted, but he, he, he certainly wasn't an avid hunter. Yeah. And, uh, boy, I couldn't get enough of hunting and I remember being very small and tagging along with him we had beagles at the time that was something that he enjoyed was cottontail hunting and I remember tagging along uh, through the brush with him but um, at that time you couldn't start hunting until till you were 12 right. in Pennsylvania and okay. it could not come fast enough for me <laughs> and by the time I hit like 14 yeah my dad was just like, just go, because we lived in a place where you could go out the back door, yeah. and I could rabbit or squirrel hunt, and he would say, kid, j- just go hunt. I can't go today. i got to work, and I was off. So is it, did you grow up in a small town, uh, obviously, or out on a farm? Or? Yeah, rural parts of Pennsylvania okay. where, you know, really fortunate to be able to, to be a young kid and be able to walk right out the door. Uh, but then it, as I got a driver's license, that world expanded and uh, was able to hunt really blessed with a lot of public lands in Pennsylvania, uh, but had a lot of private land permission as well in the community where I grew up. So a lot of hunting opportunity. That's great. But I've always just been really drawn to wildlife and hunting. So what do you, um, how do you consider yourself uh, an upland hunter primarily, or are you a generalist? Uh, do you actually prefer to hunt big game or waterfall? What's your What's uh, your passion? Yeah, I would say a generalist for sure. Um, last weekend, I was out, and my son, my son who is six, who loves to tag along with me. Uh, we shot a bunch of squirrels. Uh, of course, I do some upland hunting. I have an English setter at okay. home. Um, and I, I would say I would qualify as an avid deer hunter. And, um, my oldest daughter who's 15 is now an experienced hunter. Uh, she's been with me since she started and she'll be hunting on her own next year when she turns 16. Also introduced a, a friend's son this past year, which was really rewarding. He didn't grow up in a hunting family, but I saw a bit of a spark in him. So we got uh, got him his hunter safety course and took him out several times, and he got his first deer this year. So deer hunting is something that means a lot to us, and that's a meat endeavor yeah. for me. I'm, uh, I, I do do some antler deer hunting during the peak of the rut and enjoy that a lot, but ultimately I have a whole bunch of antlerless deer tags with the intent of putting meat in the freezer. That's great. That I enjoy it a lot. So that is, yeah, so that's a question too. You know, a lot of times people that we talk to these days they may not have a background in hunting, but they're fascinated with the eating side of, mm-hmm. of, of wild game. Um, what do you, do you cook, cook the wild game yourself mostly or anybody else in your family? And, and, uh, what, what's your, what are your favorite recipes or ways to cook? Oh, wow. You, you know, uh, one of my favorite things about the deer hunting aspect, 
I really enjoy the butchering and the preparation Absolutely. piece. Yeah. And I do so as also the primary meat cook mm-hmm. in our house. So when I'm when I'm breaking down a whitetail, I'm just looking at that thing, thinking of the next 10 months and what that's going to become. Right. And that, it's so rewarding and so much fun. And, you know, we have one big grinding day where uh, as I'm getting deer throughout the year, the kids and I, we put all the trim meat in the freezer get the big grinder out in one day and just, you know, grind hundred pounds of yeah. meat so that everybody gets involved with that. Somebody's stuffing and somebody's cutting. So it becomes a family affair that's really around that, the eating part, which is, I love it. You know, the, the whole processing of the animal, it's interesting because that's what was one realization as we've been doing more and more things, uh, with new hunters, Realizing how I think a lot of times that used to be, and especially here in the Midwest, uh, I'd be curious if it's the same in Pennsylvania. You know, if you look back when I grew up, you and I are probably similar age, 70s and 80s, um, you know, and even even into my 20s, um, I didn't have enough time to to do processing a lot of times and the culture was hey you drop it off at the local meat locker and they'll process it and figure out what kind of you know with the scrap are you going to do these types of sausages are you going to do summer sausage and what have you and and as i've tried to get back to butchering you know i used to help my dad when i was a kid i'd be, be doing the scrap meat um it's been so enjoyable personally to get back into into the full processing of every animal whenever I can, but also see how new hunters are really drawn to that. So we do butchering clinics a lot, and, and it's so fun to see people's fascination with it. And I think we used to hide it and or think, ooh, that's, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't expose the person to that yet. Mm. And instead, I'm moving it up front. And people love it. They yeah, just to understand. They're drawn to, they're drawn to yeah. And there, there's a sense for me, a very strong sense of... Uh, of self-sufficiency right. that I enjoy that, yes. you know, the whole way along from start to finish, you're securing your, your own food. And, uh, we have a garden, you know, it's kind of a life, part of a larger lifestyle too. We put up a bunch of food, but you mentioned dropping it off at the butcher, you know, it's all on me to get that animal from field to freezer. And that there's a tremendous satisfaction in that. Yeah, there is. I agree. It's uh, for me. I, it's 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 very similar feeling to cutting wood. You like to cut. I love cutting wood. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I just you look at that wood pile when it's done, and you think, wow. My, I, my kids are gonna roll their eyes at this point in the podcast. Those who like to cut wood. Uh, there is, there's just something satisfying about it that is, uh, that's unlike anything else. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's, that's great. I, I, I consider myself a generalist too, and I like to, to, to tell people that in terms of, you know, if you have a specific area that you want to zero in on, great, but you don't have to. You can just, you know, dabble around and, and try a lot of different things. Um, so when it comes to grouse and, and, and woodcocks, so mm-hmm. your organization, two sides to it. Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Right. So, did that um, has that always been that way, or did that come from two legacy organizations? Okay, so I'll give you a bit of the start on the formation of the Rough Grouse Society, the original organization that was started in 1961 by some hunters, hunter conservationists, 
in Monterey, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Mountains. And they enjoyed pursuing ruffed grouse, saw the importance of habitat, and maybe foresaw some conservation issues down the pike. And they wanted to start this organization to see to it that as kind of a bellwether of healthy forests and healthy habitats, that there was this group that was representing the Rough Grouse Society. And that's kind of our flagship. Yeah. But across those nearly 60 years, the tenant really has been supporting science-based, sound forest habitat management and wildlife management with, again, the Rough Grouse as a, a flagship, but uh, we do a lot of work for all forest wildlife. So... Um, maybe talk a little bit about forest stewardship versus wildlife stewardship and, and how that comes in. Because one of the things, um, that I think is, is always fascinating is to find, find how many people aren't aware of the connection between conservation and the hunting world. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so maybe talk a little bit about what that means. And, And so your organization when it comes to conservation of places, and I think the tough thing that people get their head around is, okay, you go shoot these animals, these birds, um, why, why do you call it conservation? Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk just very high level about that. I think we should start with the definition of, of conservation because it's kind of getting a broad application today. But right. conservation uh, has a specific origin and an originator, and I think those things are very important. So I'll go down that path just real briefly. Um, The word was formed by Gifford Pinchot, who uh, went on, he considered the father of American forestry, but went on essentially with Theodore Roosevelt and built our national forest system. And he founded this word conservation, and it was rooted in the concept of protection through wise use. So at the time when vast landscapes were being overexploited at the turn of the 20th century, they had to find a way to protect those lands. Wildlife were being market hunted to near extinction. Land was being cut the ground to the ground uh, unsustainably or all our forests were cut. And he had to navigate some way to protect these lands. And he did so by talking about wise use, protection through use, that in fact these forests are a gem and an asset to the wealth of our nation, and that by protecting them, we will be able to draw forest products and jobs, and he really wrapped the market forces into the whole thing, and he had to do that because there were timber barons and forces that were saying, you're not protecting these lands, they're ours, and it was manifest destiny. So that key of the definition of conservation to me is protection through wise use. And um, that's important on the forest wildlife piece because sustainable forest management actually is key to maintaining forest health. And, you know, similarly with the wise, sustainable use of the wildlife resource, these gentlemen in Monterey, Virginia, they were grouse hunters. But their deep passion for the bird and the realization that to be able to pursue it, they would have to be able to protect it as well. That is just at the core of the definition of conservation. So you you brought up some wonderful things within there. I, I, I love that. And, um, and I want to go down path of sustainable forest management. 
Oh, good. Okay. Uh, because I, I think that gets to the crux of this, and I think is great for people to understand what that what that means. Because I think the general um, thought process uh, process a lot of times can be along the lines of of a a um, here's a forest. Let's just set it aside. Let's mm-hmm. let's keep everything out of there. Is is the best use of it. Um, the flip side of that, obviously, being let's let's go take everything out that we can. And so when you talk about sustainable forest management, what does that mean and how does that tie into the mission of your organization and, let's say, the health of those of those birds? This is a big bite. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> it is a big bite. <laughs> well, all right, here I go. <laughs> um, well, you know, the founder of, of Conservation, Gifford Pinchot, was the nation's first forester. So having learned from these past transgressions, from that was born this science of forest management. And uh, to be able to sustainably manage these forests for water quality, open space, timber, you need to really understand the for, the science of forests and how forests grow. And the forestry profession grew from that. At the same time that the wildlife management profession grew from that, from the likes of, of Aldo Leopold. Um, so interestingly, as a legacy of that birth of the conservation movement, everything in the eastern United States and here in the Midwest was completely cut to the ground, more or less. Uh, the conservation movement came in, a lot of these lands were protected. But we've also got right now, because those forests started growing back, 100 years ago now a lot of that protected forest is a single age and it lacks a lot of natural diversity that healthy forest habitats would have and a lot of that has been because of we this is a human dominated planet man like it or not and when you you hear someone say well just set it aside and let nature take its course We've disrupted nature in a lot of ways. So a big factor in forests would have been fires that burned over centuries. We've stopped fires. We've effectively suppressed them. Um, Things like beavers across the landscape uh, no longer impacting those forest systems. There were migratory herds of bison and elk across these landscapes. That, of course, has been disrupted. So when you say let nature take its course, we've impacted nature's ability uh, to do that. And when faced with this single-aged unnatural forest, we know through the science of forestry that we can take that management into our own hands. And we can, through logging and through forest management, we can mimic natural processes sustainably. So you're saying logging can be a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's frustrating for me at times to see uh, certain groups will you know, have this litany list of all the, the threats to, to forests. And, you know, it's mountaintop removal and strip mining and fracking and development and logging. <laughs> what, do you remember Sesame Street when you would have the squares where one of these things is yeah. different than all? Yeah. One of these things is different. Yeah. It's sustainable. Yeah. It's management of a renewable yeah. resource yeah. 
and it can be done well. And what we're finding in particular with forest wildlife is that it needs to be done well mm -hmm. to overcome this unnatural single-aged forest. We've got to be able to get in there and manage that forest and mimic natural disturbances through logging to make that habitat healthier. Right. So, and, and I think the key words, diversity and disruption. Yes. You know, um, it's, it's uh, like, like you said, when we have come in and impacted, we, you know, fire suppression, we've eliminated a lot of that, right? Absolutely. And so the natural cycle doesn't exist because we are Correct. here just naturally just because of that. And so having a, a science-based approach, right? And so when you think about what does your organization, excuse me, organization, um, uh, what is the perspective or philosophy when it comes to how that forest is managed? Is it a science-based approach that um, keeps politics at bay and or, and or special interests so that it is a science-based approach that says this forest to be managed in a healthy way in a di with diversity and, and disruption that is healthy to that, to that end, mm -hmm. um, here's how we do that. Well, you, you figure out quickly your, your idealism, you know, when you're in your early 20s and going into this, uh, this field of wildlife management and forest management that nothing you ever do is going to be free from the politics and the policies and the regulatory side of it. So you really have to take a holistic approach to making those things happen. Um, but, you know, in, uh, when, when you talk about forest diversity, the other thing that's been disrupted is we've protected these, pri these public lands. But they're on an ever-shrinking scale across landscapes. So even natural disturbances um, that we haven't disrupted, like the wind, you're more likely for a wind event to disturb habitats and regenerate some young forest a wind event is more likely to wipe out a housing development than to create diverse forest habitats uh, because we're managing for wildlife on an ever-shrinking land base. Mm -hmm. So just, just back to some of that, how we've disrupted these natural forces and, and how we've got to be able to, to mimic those disturbances through active management. Right, right. So let's let's jump to the the bird itself, oh, rough great. grouse and yes. woodcock. So uh, share a little bit about... The rough grouse. Oh, wow. So the rough grouse has been called the king of upland game birds. And, you know, not to be gender specific, the king and queen, the royalty <laughs> of upland game birds. And it is a deserved reputation. This bird is tough. There were, um, in a cave in south central Pennsylvania, there are remnants of uh, rough grouse that were discovered in this in this cave from 25,000 years ago among three other species that are long since ex extinct. So they are a tough bird. Um, they're, I would consider them a northern species, uh, which seems to contradict with their range extending to places like North Georgia. But what you have in that southern Appalachian range is the birds persist above about 3,000 feet in elevation, where the climate is more more northerly. Uh, they extend all the way up the Appalachian chain into uh, the New England states, into Canada. The core of rough grouse range today is really in the Great Lakes states as well and in, in the upper Midwest. But then you go out into the Intermountain West and you have rough grouse populations out there as well. 
Um, they're non-migratory um, compared to the American woodcock, which is a migratory bird. Um, generally two flyways recognized for migratory woodcock, the east and the central, and birds that are nesting in Maine may spend the winters in coastal plains South Carolina. Birds that are nesting and raising broods here in Minnesota may spend their winters in uh, coastal Louisiana. So two very different species really, but they converge on the types of habitats they prefer, which is these diverse healthy forest habitats. So somebody who is new to upland, they're, they're, well, somebody who's new to hunting. Do you think upland uh, hunting is, is a good place to start? I think it's a wonderful place to start. And, uh, you know, one of the draws that we're finding with upland bird hunting specifically is the attraction of the dogs. Mm. And as you walk around Pheasant Fest here, mm-hmm. uh, people have their, this is definitely a dog-friendly environment, and you just see people drawn to those dogs and I think it's a great entrance way uh, into upland hunting is through dogs. So do you have to have a dog to upland hunt? Absolutely not. I harvested my first rough grouse without a dog and we actually recently within the Rough Grouse Society uh, did a survey and asked the question did you harvest your first rough grouse with or without a dog and well over half of people did so without a dog and in fact Though I'm a bird dog person at this point, um, we had a few days to hunt in north central Pennsylvania this fall and um, ran out of dog. We ran out of dog. The dogs were beat up. <laughs> we had another afternoon to hunt. Yeah. So we just foot walked. Yeah. Yeah. And I killed a bird. Yeah. That was the two of us that were hunting had just flushed without a dog just this season. The majority of grouse I've shot in my life have been without a dog. I, yeah. I don't have a dog right now. And, um, and that's something I like to tell people so you don't have to. No, you don't. And, and especially with grouse hunting and woodcock hunting, uh, more so than pheasant hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think it just, it lends itself to going for a nice walk in the woods in sure the fall does. and, uh, and, and ha- have, have some good odds. Mm-hmm. Um, so woodcock or migratory? How about, mm-hmm. how about the range of woodcock? Um, so the range of woodcock, essentially, if you look at across the whole year, uh, runs north to south uh, across the country. So as I mentioned, birds that might spend their summers, spring and summers in Maine, may find themselves down on the southern and the southeastern United States in the winter, and every point in between yeah. as they travel up and down. And we're engaged in a couple of flyway studies, which have been really neat. Uh, one in the central flyway where we put GPS trackers on these woodcock and track them through their migrations from places like Michigan down to Louisiana. And in the east, places like Maine down into South Carolina and Georgia. Knowing the size of a woodcock, I got to see this GPS unit and how yeah. big. <laughs> it's got to be a small little thing. The technology has been incredible, but with the GPS technology and, and the limiting factor is the battery. Yeah. Interestingly, yeah, you've got to have a super powered battery that's really tiny, yeah, so that it's not impacting that bird's ability to fly. But it has given us unbelievable information. And uh, some really neat things, like we found in the east that some woodcock will cover 400 miles in a night. That's amazing. And they do a lot of their migration during the night. So really a neat bird. So when you're doing these studies, um, you're looking at health, you're looking at uh, what's happening, what are the trends. Um, 
What are you seeing right now related to diseases from West Nile to the Eastern equine encephalitis? Mm. Uh, and well threads. said. I tried. I, 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 I tried. <laughs> E E E, right? Yeah. Um, so these are some diseases that that are just coming into play and potentially impacting populations, seeing certain declines. Like here in Minnesota, um, you know, I'm sure you're you're aware. I mean, we just had these last year was supposed to be this amazing grouse year. The spring counts were off the charts, wonderful, and then we get to the fall, and the harvest numbers are really low. And so from what I understand, the biologists are looking at it and saying, okay, what's happening during the summer? Are we seeing, are, are we seeing a die-off of this really good, strong brood in the spring, and then they're not here in the fall? So what, what's, what's happening? What, do we have any answers yet? Let's set this up first. We'll preface it a bit with the status of grouse and woodcock. And at around 2005, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service required each state wildlife agency to write what they called a state wildlife action plan. And this was to be the blueprint for each state and their conservation. And in so writing this plan, they identified what were called species of greatest conservation need. Like these are the species we really need to pay attention to because we're seeing troubling trends or habitat loss or whatever. So in these state wildlife action plans, ruffed grouse are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in 18 really? of these state wildlife action plans. Hmm. Uh, American woodcock are listed in 28 wow. as a species of conservation need. And um, this is because of long-term declines, a lot of them related to habitat degradation. Um, so then, uh, you know, in the around 2000 around that same time 2008 9 10 we start picking up on west nile virus this novel disease that seems to be impacting the birds and pennsylvania actually has been kind of at, at the forefront for that research uh, they've been doing the at the longest at this point and um just recently, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan have formed a tri-state effort to better understand how West Nile is impacting populations. Because as you said, it was clear that something was occurring between the drumming counts and the fall hunting seasons, and disease was, was suspect there. So uh, in a nutshell, and there's a lot of detail out there uh, about West Nile virus, and, and I direct listeners, if they want to learn more about West Nile virus, Ron Bame's Hunting Dog podcast, they did a fantastic episode with Lisa Williams, the grouse biologist from Pennsylvania, and she does a wonderful job of going through the ins and outs of West Nile virus. But to summarize here, what they have found is you'll have certain years where West Nile virus, and specifically the mosquito that carries it, are really bad. If you've got a warm, extended, wet spring, the one species of mosquito that carries that disease will be increased. So you've got some years where West Nile is real bad, other years where it's not so bad. The link they have made through research is that following a bad West Nile year, those populations can recover better and faster in quality habitat. Mm. If you're in poor habitat, sometimes those populations can't recover at all hmm. and intuitively this makes sense hmm. you've got an animal that's living in high quality habitat it's more resilient it's better going to be able to respond to a novel disease like west nile versus one that's barely hanging on 
in poor habitat. So intuitively, that kind of makes sense. And but for us, you know, it, it's promising because we can stick to our 60-year mission of habitat conservation really is the answer even to these novel diseases and we'll see where i'm going to chicken out here and just call it triple e (laughs) the equine encephalitis uh it was confirmed in minnesota in some rough grouse that were picked up dead we don't have a clear picture but here it is again another mosquito-borne disease but also again these populations are most resilient where they have good habitat yeah so what are we talked about good habitat, having diversity, mm-hmm. disruption being part of that, what's bad disruption or what's bad um, habitat um, scenarios What when, when we talk about certain declines in population? One of the biggest threats, uh, without question, is development. Mm-hmm. That true um, deforestation where forest is being converted to developed uses whether it's residential or or whatever but it's true forest loss true deforestation you know something to be mindful of is that sustainable forest management through logging even though trees are being cut that's not deforestation Mm -hmm. that forest is being taken to a different age class it is now a younger forest where the older trees have been cut but it is still forest that will grow on for hundreds of more years until it's cut again. But one of the biggest threats is development and true deforestation. In my home state, uh, which is Pennsylvania, I've seen figures that 400 and some acres per day of open space are being lost to development. Wow, wow. That's, uh, that's crazy to think about that. Um, so when you think about uh, the forests we're talking about, uh, have you ever done questions with your membership around public versus private land hunting? And, and I'm, I'm presuming a lot of public land hunters within your organization, but what's what's the insight you have on that? As far as proportion of public versus yeah, private? Yeah, and or what, what's your perspective on it as an organization? Mm-hmm. Do you support uh, uh, keeping access to public land and uh, – supporting uh, initiatives within the states where they're looking to to acquire new public land options Mm -hmm. to keep those places accessible to everyone yeah the public lands the conserved protected lands are absolutely key and there are very few people that you would survey that say you know they hunt uh, private land exclusively right there are far more people that you would survey that say i only have access to public land Mm -hmm. and uh this is something that is really close to me uh for 13 years, I was habitat division chief for a state wildlife agency where I oversaw management of several million acres of public land. And um, I always took that to heart that uh, not only were they important for uh, wildlife populations, but important for people to have a place to go and hunt. And not just go and hunt and walk around, but go and hunt and have the best possible experience to make sure that habitat was prime that you could get in there and, you know, you could have success and to make it, have encounters with rough grouse or whitetails or squirrels or whatever it was. So that's all how I always looked at my responsibility in managing public lands was let's make this the best possible place for people to have a good opportunity in the field. Yeah, abs- absolutely. That's great. So, you know, with the, uh, with some of the threats to public land, like we talked about, I believe, uh, Rough Grouse Society and uh, American Woodcock Society has has taken a position on uh, an issue we've got 
here in Minnesota, which can be uh, touchy, which is the sulfide or copper mining up in the Boundary Waters, is uh, I thought I remember seeing you guys um, on on a taking a position on that. Have you done that? Yeah, we we were watching very carefully what what was going on with the the mining proposal, and uh, tied in with some partners and uh, were engaging on what was going to happen on the policy end. And there was a lot of back and forth communications. And uh, all in all, with that one specifically, we weren't comfortable with that specific type of mining that there were assurances that we weren't going to have uh, negative environmental impacts. And so the House resolution that uh, ended up, we ended up and other partners ended up supporting was specifically to that type of mining in that area. This was not, you know, never shall the boundary waters be touched but it was specific to that type of mining where we couldn't be assured that there wouldn't be negative environmental impacts and we had we were part of a broad partnership that felt the same way yeah absolutely really really happy to see you guys on on that uh on that message uh we a few years ago we shot a a a short film up there with uh, a veteran uh by the name of Eric Packard, and took him on his first grouse hunt, and oh, wow. he got his first grouse in the boundary. In the boundary waters, waters. Yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to grouse hunt. If you haven't come up, you should come back sometime. Well, we'll so do this that. is a film you did. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll have to get a link to that. Yeah, it's called Flush in the Wild. I'll I'll, I'll uh, get oh, you a link. Please do. Very yeah, cool. Absolutely. Um, well, this is this has been a really good conversation. I really really enjoyed it. Where Me too. would um, where would people go if they want to become a member of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society? Well, they should learn some more about us. And I think uh, Facebook is, of course, a great place to do that. And we're active on Instagram as well. So you can go to Out Rough Grouse Society. Uh, you can see what I'm into on my homestead and woodcutting operations. You can follow <laughs> me at, at Ben Jones underscore Forest Wildlife. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, I hope you go to our website, check us out, and click one of the Join Now buttons, uh, $35 membership. And, you know, the way we look at this is as a single voice in conservation. Uh, by joining a group like the Rough Grouse Society, you're joining a network. And so we have regular meetings with the state wildlife and uh, natural resources agencies, and we plan projects. So by joining that network, you're amplifying your voice and your ability to get conservation work done. And you know, it's 35 bucks a year and if nothing else, you get a really nice magazine and can keep uh, keep track of what we're into, but uh joining that network is key and you just go to our website and check it out. That's great. Well, I can attest to as I mentioned to you earlier, unfortunately, I hadn't been a member till just couple last couple years. And uh, it's a great organization, and uh, Betsy's doing a great job here in Minnesota. Yeah, and uh, and so we we'll uh, appreciate your support. Yeah, Thank you. absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ben Jones from the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. If you do have a moment, check out their website, roughgrousesociety.org, and also please do check out huntingcamp.live. If you are new to hunting, we literally have all the resources out there for you to learn about this activity from the comfort of your home. I'm now off to Grouse Camp in Wisconsin with RGS, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. 
You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.